From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihe Razazan. And I'm Khalil Bendib. Maintenant, on va aller à la Casbah et avec ça, ils ne pourront pas te reconnaître. Tu as compris Tu vas nous indiquer l'endroit où se cache Ali Lapointe. Après, tu seras libre. Donnez-lui une casquette et habillez-le. Intégration. <rire> allons, allons, fais pas l'idiot, la gloire. At age 50, the film The Battle of Algiers has never seemed so current as it continues to inspire, instruct and inform as much as it did when it first came out in 1966. What is it about this classic film that has so revolutionized the very medium of political cinema? and continues to provoke thought and reflection and whose lessons are still pondered in the world's movie theaters, university campuses, and military barracks long after its first showing. Late Palestinian intellectual Edward Said talks about the Battle of Algiers director Gillo Pontecorvo. In the 1960s, two films by Gillo Pontecorvo, The Battle of Algiers and Bern, were perhaps the first time a European director had dealt explicitly with anti-colonial struggles against European powers. masterly political film style is uncompromising and yet lyrical and even redemptive. It influenced a whole generation of filmmakers, people like Oliver Stone, Costa Gavras, and Bertolucci. And the two films, Bern and The Battle of Algiers, stand unmatched uh, and un unexcelled since they were made in the 60s. Both films together constitute a political and aesthetic standard never again equaled. The Italy of Pontecorvo's youth was dominated by Mussolini. As a middle-class Jew, Pontecorvo was expected to pursue an academic career. However, anti-Semitic laws were to restrict the opportunities open to young people with his background. But in Paris, he found the cultural and political atmosphere liberating. It was there that he met Picasso, Stravinsky, and Jean-Paul Sartre, among others. Still a young man, he went on to lead much of the opposition to fascism in Milan and northern Italy. He became head of the communist youth organization and continued the struggle throughout the Second World War. He was only 24 years old. An imaginative and ingenious leader, his wartime experiences have clearly informed his film work. With the defeat of fascism in Europe, Italy celebrated the downfall of Mussolini's regime. 
The young war hero Pontecorvo chose to pursue a career as a photojournalist. On assignment in Paris, he was to see one of the classics of Italian neorealist cinema. He learned much from working with other directors. In Aldo Vergano's The Sun Also Rises, he was assistant director and also took the role of a partisan in the Italian resistance. Pontecorvo became detached from domestic politics after the war. Although he remained very much a man of the European left, the Soviet invasion of Hungary in 1956 forced him to quit the Italian Communist Party. In 1959, Pontecorvo directed his first feature film. Capo was one of the first films to depict the experiences of the concentration camps. He showed great flair in the handling of crowd scenes, which seemed to owe much to Eisenstein, as well as to Rossellini. But through Capo, Pontecorvo consolidated his working relationship with the scriptwriter Franco Solinas. Mr. Bamhidi, in your opinion, does the FLN still have some chance of defeating the French army? Selon moi, le FLN a beaucoup plus de chances de battre l'armée française que celle-ci n'en a d'arrêter le cours de l'histoire. For this film, which was influenced by the ideas of Fanon and Gramsci, Pontecorvo used an extraordinary black and white documentary, grainy style. And he used a cast of Algerian non-professionals. One of them, Yasser Sadi, was the leader of the FLN in the Algiers Casbah. And he told the story not only of a group of individuals whom one could recognize and identify with, but he also told the story of what he called a choral personage, an emerging popular identity, a people coming out of colonial servitude after 130 years. In collaboration with Ennio Morricone, Pontecorvo created an innovative score that heightened the sense of tragedy while also addressing both Western and Algerian audiences. Despite French government objections, the Battle of Algiers won the Golden Lion at the 1966 Venice Film Festival. Nevertheless, it remained banned in France for over four years. The success of the Battle of Algiers had established Pontecorvo as a major player in Italian cinema. It had also marked him out as perhaps the most outspoken and politically committed filmmaker in Europe. The idea that human history is being made before us, human endeavor and human sacrifice, are very, very compelling, particularly in the present climate where there is no Pontecorvo making films. Yet in the end, I think his films leave us with a lot of questions. Questions like, can empires be defeated? Is there a possibility for relationships between Western societies and non-Western societies that are not based on oppression and discrimination. In a recent piece, The Battle of Algiers at 50, from 1960s radicalism to the classrooms of West Point, Columbia University's Madeleine Doby 
notes that the film has been acknowledged as an influence on everyone, from the Black Panthers to the Red Army faction to the military juntas of the Southern Cone. It may, however, have had the greatest impact in the U.S., where it has appealed both to scholars of colonial and post-colonial history, such as herself, and to members of the military and defense community. Khalil spoke with Professor Dobi about why this film has withstood the test of time. Professor Dobi, before we begin, for full disclosure, I must tell you I was born during this Battle of Algiers and by complete coincidence even met the man who introduced the film to the troops in 2003. This was in Lexington, Kentucky, at the National Convention for Political Cartoons of all places. And the man happened to introduce himself to me and tell me who he was and how proud he was. It was his idea to introduce the troops to this incredible movie. My family barely escaped alive from that whole violence that was happening at the time in the 50s. Two of my uncles were tortured during that battle, and one of them died as a result. And I know a few of the people portrayed in the movie. All that to tell you how central this story has been to my own life and political development. In your recent paper titled The Battle of Algiers at 50, From the 1960s Radicalism to the Classrooms of West Point, you make the argument that this 50-year-old film is as fresh today in some ways as it was when it first came out in 1966. Tell us why. First of all, it's special to talk about the film with someone who has such a strong personal connection. And I'm, of course, I'm moved and sorry to hear about your family history. It's a, a film that keeps being reinvented and repurposed. It's a film that we have to look at as a media event and as a political event in its own right beyond its account of the events of the Algerian War of Independence. And what has always struck me about the film and what was really the inspiration for the piece is that as much as the film has inspired revolutionaries, radicals, either directly or more indirectly, philosophically, it has also been this powerful presence in military and policy circles. I've always known that. I kind of accepted it. I've often taught the film, and sometimes I've had among my students veterans or people who are currently serving in the military And they have consistently told me that they've been shown the film at some point in their training. I guess, you know, thinking about the anniversary of the film coming up, I wanted to know more about that experience. And just to add something to that, I think the film has inspired an enormous amount of reflection on the part of scholars, academics, intellectuals of all kinds, and some wonderful things have been written about the film. To the extent that we on the left collectively have thought about the military approach to the film, and the assumption is that it's a kind of blind appropriation, that it's some kind of sign of of naivete, but in a way, you know, we just kind of remain within a kind of self-reproducing binarism. So I wanted to 
go a little bit beyond that self-affirmation or, you know, we're the revolutionaries, we're for the film and they take the wrong approach to it and get a little bit deeper into what's actually going on. And some of what came out of that was surprising. Yeah, that's what I like about your piece. It brings some, some new insight to the complexities of the film. It's not a flat film. It's not a Hollywood movie where you have good guys on one side and bad guys on the other. Right. The war of ideas, the war for hearts and minds, in addition to the actual war of repression, what Algerians still call the genocide. Mm -hmm. Algeria claims that a million and a half people were killed, mostly Algerians, about 25,000 French, mm -hmm. that this war was relevant to the U.S., which in Vietnam had sort of inherited the mantle of colonial master, even though it was not a colony of the U.S., from the French after their defeat in Dien Bien Phu in 1954. I learned a few years ago that the tortures of Algiers, some of them been recruited here in the School of the Americas in the 70s, among them General uh, Osares, mm -hmm. to teach the incredible techniques that the French were applying, the torture and the counterinsurgency techniques, to teach them to the U.S. and to their stooges in, in Latin America, people like Dub Buisson and El Salvador. What is it in this particular film, The Battle of Algiers, that has managed somehow to threaten many governments and inspire so many insurgency movements, guerrilla movements, etc., across the globe? What was it that had such potent effect on so many? So to the extent that the film has inspired insurgents, revolutionaries, and as a result, made governments and militaries nervous. There are a lot of things. Part of it is, of course, that it channels a zeitgeist. The period you're speaking of, the 60s into the 70s, is a moment of insurgency. So it's a moment of counter anti-colonial uprising all over the world. It's a moment when there are internal fractures in you know, many nation-states and challenges are mounted to governments. And, you know, so the film is a work that channels that, maybe partly because of something that's, that's often brought up in connection with it, which is that it is this international co-production. I mean, it channels the idea of, a, of an international political movement or consciousness in a very concrete sense that, you know, it has an Algerian and two Italian co-producers. The Italians are coming out of a commitment to communism, to the European left. The director, Gilo Pontecorvo, had been an important figure of the Italian resistance. Saad Yassef, who plays a version of himself in the film and who was the Algerian producer, obviously was coming directly out of his experience as revolutionary in Algeria. But he had grown up with an interest in the cinema, and the few films that he had seen included a lot of Italian neorealist movies that he found very inspiring. So that was one reason why he looked to Italy for a director to, to make the film. I think it's very significant that his impulse was to make this an international phenomenon. Just to back up a little bit, he had written a memoir of his experiences while he was in prison in France in late 50s, early 1960s, and that memoir was published in 62. And then in conjunction with René Vautier, important figure, French left-wing filmmaker who 
helped the Algerian nationalists, the FLN, the Front de Libération Nationale, to to learn how to make films, propaganda films, I guess. So together with him, he made a film treatment based on the memoir. Then he wanted to find a director who would make this into a film and ultimately settled on Ponte Corvo for a number of reasons, but including this this political affinity. But I think it's very important that the idea was to find someone outside of Algeria to do this. And so this really became a co-production, a collaboration that that reflects this international spirit, this internationalist moment. So part of what you're touching on is just is this moment of revolutionary fervor and insurgency that explains the film channels what was going on in different parts of the world and then has an effect of, of inspiring more of that elsewhere. You know, on the other side of the equation, the transfer of personnel who had been in the French military from Algeria to the Americas, to Latin America and the U.S. in the aftermath of the French defeat in Algeria. And that's also a really important story. In a sense, the other side of everything that the film is involved in inspiring. So there were indeed a number of former French officers, including, you mentioned, Paul Osaras, who went on to train military personnel in Argentina, Chile, in particular in in the context of those nations, dirty wars, and applied some of the techniques that they had first used in Algeria. So it was nothing short of a stroke of genius to have found Gillo Pontecorvo. Nobody else, in my opinion, (laughs) could have come up with this particular film, not just in content, but in its form. And it's incredibly innovative style. Tell us about what might have made this film even more powerful, the way that Ponte Corvo approached it. Ponte Corvo is a fascinating figure, fascinating filmmaker. He made a series of political films about subjects that are really the most difficult to make visual representations of. So he made a film called Capo, about the Holocaust. He made a film after Battle of Algiers called Quemada, or Burn, about colonialism in the Caribbean and about slavery and slave revolts. And he made this film about the Battle of Algiers. There are many interesting things to be said about Ponte Corvo's techniques and why there was a kind of combustion that made this movie so so powerful. Something that is brought up a lot is the way that he uses the techniques that come out of Italian neorealism. He used the expression dictatorship of truth. It's, it's in a way a rather misleading expression. He famously used a, a quality of film that looks like newsreel, So the film has a kind of documentary quality that makes you feel that you're watching a newsreel account of the battle. So many people came out of that film convinced they'd seen the documentary. (laughs) It's clear that it's a feature film, but it felt like a documentary, the black and white. And also his casting. Tell us about how he chose to cast his film. Right. So the one aspect is the, the grainy black and white. He chose a particular caliber of film that would seem like newsreel. It's not a, in a kind of professional quality of film for a feature film at all. The casting, Ponte Corvo is known for preferring non-actors, 
except for some very major roles. He cast Marlon Brando in, in the film about the Caribbean. And in Battle of Algiers, there's one professional actor, Jean Martin, who plays the leader of the French paratroopers, Colonel Mathieu. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, they were people who Pontecorvo found on the streets of Algiers. And he was obsessed with finding the right face. And so he would, you know, notoriously he would spend days, sometimes weeks, scouring crowds to find the perfect face for a role. He immediately liked Saadi Yassef's face and wanted to cast him. He's a handsome face. <laughs> I think it's a, it's a rather gentle face, perhaps. Yeah, and it's also a very, I would say, quintessentially Mediterranean face, which makes him more universal in a way. Westerners might empathize with a face that's not too far from what they're used to looking at in the mirror. A lot of Algerians, like anywhere around the Mediterranean, it's a melting pot that doesn't know it's a melting pot. And mm-hmm. that guy could have looked Italian, French, whatever. Yusuf Sadi is a typical Algerian face, but mm-hmm. quite universal in that way. Yeah, that's been said. And I think it, I believe that Ponte Corvo himself may have said something along those lines. It's an interesting, his face contrasts quite a bit with the very angular... Ali Lapointe. Yes, yes. <laughs> the of um, Brahim Hagiag, who played Ali Lapointe, who was somebody who Ponte Corvo saw in a crowd or found on the streets and who who needed a lot of coaching, apparently, to the point that Ponte Corvo actually had to act out physically some of the scenes to show him what he wanted him to do something that is not at all apparent from just watching the film. But I want to come back to what you said about the feeling that someone coming out of the movie might think that they were watching a documentary or a newsreel. When the film was nominated for an Oscar, a new title was introduced explaining that not a single foot of newsreel was used. So audiences were suddenly, in the print that that was produced, were suddenly being told something additional about the film, which was, this is not a documentary, there's no newsreel used here. And you can interpret that in a number of ways, one being that the point for the Oscars was to highlight the artistry of the filmmakers, that the film was not appearing in a documentary category, this is a feature film and it should be looked at as such. But perhaps also felt that people needed to be reminded that this is a narrative. It's narrated from a particular point of view. The film uses very cinematic techniques. In spite of the newsreel and the casting of non-professional actors, it's structured as a flashback, which is a technique associated with film noir, Hollywood detective films, for example. It's also that hyper-realism that you mentioned that comes through this, picking people out of the street. To an Algerian, at least, it felt so real because (laughs) Mm -hmm. these weren't actors and these were real streets that we all knew. It had that really powerful double take. We knew it wasn't a documentary, but it certainly felt like one. Yes, you're right. I mean, it would have been completely different if it had not been filmed so close to the events in the places where they happened involving some of the people who no doubt had played a role of some kind or another during the war. They had the right look, they had the right clothing, and they were perhaps most important of all, they were speaking 
Algerian Arabic, they were speaking Darja, and they were speaking French in the film as they naturally would in... Yes, that funny mixture of French, Arabic, Berber, Turkish, that everybody speaks in Algiers. Yeah. One who gets less credit, perhaps, but also had a very powerful share, I think, in the success of the film is Ennio Morricone, an incredible mm -hmm. musician, Peerless, I think, when it comes to making music for films. But in Battle of Algiers, it really grips you from the yeah. start and never lets you go. Very powerful. It has been argued that Ponte Corvo, though rather clearly sympathetic to the Algerian side, still managed to show complexities and consequences of violence from both sides. And perhaps that is one of the film's most enduring legacies. This was not a simplistic Hollywood-type movie with good guys and bad guys. Do you feel that this was also what lent it some of its credibility? Absolutely. I'm thinking about the word credibility. What's interesting about the, you know, that what's often described as... Or plausibility, even, let's say. Yeah, plausibility, say. perhaps. Mm -hmm. You know, the even-handedness of the film... That's, of course, one reason why it does have an appeal across the political spectrum. So it doesn't just feel like a film that confirms what you already know. It doesn't just confirm your own political perspective. It tries to open up to a perspective that at face value seems to be unacceptable or the opposite of one that you could hold. Again, if we come back to how the film came about, Ponte Corvo had a different screenplay. He had been interested in making a kind of psychological film about a French paratrooper. So this film was going to be called Para, and he had gone to Algiers with the idea of making that film. He had been introduced to Saadi Yassef, who had sent a representative to Rome looking for a director. And he tried to interest Sadi Yassef in that project. And Sadi Yassef said, no, I, you know, no one wants a film from a French perspective about a paratrooper. And this is just not what I, as an Algerian, want to do. And he had his screenplay, which Ponte Corvo rejected as being a kind of reductive, heroic, ideological narrative. So somewhere between those two projects, emerged project that encompasses more perspectives. And I think it was extremely important to Ponte Corvo and, and not unimportant to Sadi Yassef to try to portray the French in a more subtle way than you might expect. Some left-wing observers of the film over the last five decades have been rather critical of that, And I think it does need to be said, and you know, you referred to the, to the Algerian genocide. It does need to be said that even though the film contains these terrible depictions, these horrible depictions of torture, the reality was even worse. And the film, and this is something I touch on in the article, the film tends to treat torture as kind of muscular interrogation, a way of getting intelligence of getting information and that certainly was part of the story but i think it's known that the use of torture in in algeria was extremely widespread i think it's estimated by some historians that up to 40% of the population of the kasbah was tortured at some point during those months of 1957 in which the city was under french military rule 
And that torture wasn't just for getting answers. It was for purposes of humiliation and psychological warfare. All of that to say that the film could have gone much further in demonizing Mm -hmm. the French than it does. But for philosophical reasons and for its own kind of political reasons, it doesn't do that. But it portrays the French as as rational as having a clear objective and acting in such a way as to achieve that objective. And that's Madeleine Doby, Associate Professor of French and Comparative Literature at Columbia University, speaking with Khalil Bendib about the Battle of Algiers at 50. We'll hear more after a break. From Pacifico Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. Stay with us. Leg, who was one of the famous people who were tortured yeah. uh, during that war. And he wrote a seminal book about torture called La Question, as you know, that's been reprinted worldwide. And his estimation, torture, as you said, was much more than just going after information. It was a systematic way to humiliate and to subjugate and to terrify the population, regardless of whether individuals were involved or not involved. As I told you earlier, two of my uncles were tortured, and the one who was totally apolitical happened to be the one who died of the torture. The other one survived. And according to Henri Alleg, there's even some uh, sexual facet to the use of torture. There's all sorts of psychological reasons why torture was happening. But it was interesting that in this country, on the occasion of uh, shock and awe and the aftermath, This became a very big subject, the use of uh, waterboarding, for example, which is illustrated in the Battle of Algiers very graphically. The parallels between, generally, a war of counterinsurgency, whether it's in Algeria or in Vietnam or Latin America. I had a book that's called Zara's Paradise about what happened in 2009 in Iran, a graphic novel. And I traveled the world with that uh, graphic novel, and it finally occurred to me, <laughs> just picking up a newspaper in Sao Paulo, Brazil, that torture was really a universal theme. It was not something that France had experienced and then practiced, that this country was grappling with. It was really pretty much a universal problem. That day in Sao Paulo, I picked up the newspaper, and the front page was about torture, what had happened in the 70s and 80s during the yeah. 30 years of the dictatorship. Was it really torture? Was it not torture? Why would it happen? Perhaps it's also part of the reason the Battle of Algiers is, is so relevant to pretty much almost anywhere within past 50 years, which country has not known torture, has not known disappearances, has not known political repression. Right. And of course, unfortunately, you know, one reason why the film has, if anything, had a you know, a significant revival in the last decade and a half 
has been not just a question of a dynamic between insurgency and, and counterinsurgency, but also the role of torture in that dynamic. And there are famous screenings of the film that happened in the United States in 2003, 2004, so at the Pentagon and Council on Foreign Relations and the White House. One of the things looming, the story of Abu Ghraib and the questions you know, emerging in relation to Guantanamo. So a feeling that the moral question and political question of torture still remain very much in the balance. One interesting thing I think about the influence of the film is that I think it would be fair to say that it has been less influential in France and perhaps, and this is more complicated, but perhaps also in Algeria than it has been in some other places and especially the United States. But the moment in France when it began to assume relevancy again was very much connected to the question of torture and to the issue that you brought up, which is the place of sexuality in, in torture. So in 2000, a former female combatant in the Algerian war published a memoir in which she spoke at length about her experience of torture and the sexual dimensions of the way in which women were tortured. And you know, many of those same practices were used on male prisoners as well. And that unleashed a whole return to what kind of torture was practiced, who knew about it, who had authorized it, whether it was legitimate or not, with some of the major French officers who had been in command during the War of Independence contradicting each other or changing positions. In one case, famous General Massou, who had, had been the supreme commander, basically, mm-hmm. reversed his earlier position on the Battle of Algiers and said that actually torture wasn't justified, having earlier defended it. Whereas Osares, who you mentioned earlier, continued to be a significant apologist for torture, leading to a series of lawsuits going back and forth. So as recently as 2000, 2002, there were a lot of books appearing with the the words Battle of Algiers in their their titles that, that revisited the history. And I think it's become very difficult to revisit the history of the Battle of Algiers without processing that through the film, The Battle of Algiers, and that also revisit the question of torture. When I first arrived in this country 39 years ago now, (laughs) this country is not very good in geography. It's not really a topic that's a high priority in in K through 12. And yet almost every American that I just met and told them where I was from, they would go, wait, wait, Algeria, Algeria. I've seen the movie. I I saw the movie, Battle of Algiers. (laughs) It was such a famous movie. Even those who didn't know much about Algeria had seen or heard about this incredible movie. Yes, it's a mixed blessing, I think, right? (laughs) Yes, yes. So one of the things about your paper, Battle of Algiers, from the 1960s radicalism to the classrooms of West Point, was that both sides, people on the left, people on the right, nobody was completely satisfied with that film because it was so honest and didn't really shy away from much of what had actually happened. But you say in your paper that you wish this film had 
shown some of the not-so-romantic sides of the Algerian Revolution, like uh, dissensions within the movement, the FLN, fratricidal killings, violence basically unleashed not just against the French, and not all French were culpable. We see in the film uh, a scene that will always stay with me is that little French kid who's innocently licking his ice cream before the bomb explodes. So this whole question of the dirty dimensions to this ostensibly romantic movement Tell us why it bothered you a little bit that you didn't see more of that. It's not so much that it bothers me that those things are not shown. I mean, I, certainly it has bothered some viewers of the film. People from different points of the political spectrum have taken issue with different things that are in the film or not in the film. What I was reflecting on more is the fact that for the article, I spoke with quite a few people who are involved in... PME, professional military education. As I said at the beginning, I really wanted to understand who's showing the film in a military or in a policy context, why, what the goals are, and to get beyond the the assumption that there was one screening at the Pentagon, it was an act of tremendous naivete and hubris, and the assumption was somehow that the U.S. would prevail like the French paratroopers failing to draw the final conclusion that you can win the battle and lose the war. That narrative, I was pretty sure that that would turn out not to be enough. And in fact, it's not enough. But I wanted to know what actually is going on. If so many students who I've had who are are veterans have seen the film. And so I talked to people in West Point at the U.S. Military Academy, at the National Defense University, in various strategic centers that report to the Department of Defense. So other people who have all lectured on the film or taught the film and who are either military or in professional military education roles. And it was fascinating. And for the most part, I would say their attitude was not especially doctrinaire. So they were all very prepared for their students or the people they were presenting the film to, to identify with Ali Lapointe, or to, and they wanted to raise questions about what is terrorism, who is a terrorist, who defines what a terrorism is, or who a terrorist is. So that aspect of it was fairly open-minded. Where it seemed to me to fall more into a kind of problematic mode is that there's kind of an assumption that the film conveys the reality that the film isn't so much treated as a film as as it is treated as a mirror of history. And that isn't interrogated very much. So the way torture is presented in the film must be the way torture was, or the way the FLN is presented in the film must be the way the FLN worked. First of all, if you're doing military strategy, it seems a little bit problematic to base it on a fiction film. If you're deciding whether it's a good idea to decapitate the leadership of an organization or not, it's important to say this is a a movie, you know. This is not necessarily how the organization actually worked. And that seems to be a bit missing. There seems to be a tendency to treat the film as testimony or some kind of information that you can mine for thinking about how the French military worked and how the you know, how the Algerians worked. And it's in that sense that what's missing from the film becomes significant. So just, you know, a few of the things that are missing are, as I said, the way torture is shown is not 
enough if you want to really speak about how torture actually operated in Algeria or how it has worked since in more recent conflicts in which the U.S. has been engaged. The film doesn't depict the role of women with historical accuracy. Hmm. It, the film draws strongly on Franz Fennel's reflections on gender and the Algerian revolution. Oh, so that's an interesting point you're making. How is the um, women's role not depicted correctly? There's a, a former combatant of the war called Jamila Min Amran, who published a book based on interviews with many women who had been militants and revolutionaries mm -hmm. that takes issue with the way in which women were basically in Algeria written out of the story or just basically relegated to the role of supporters as opposed to participants and, and combatants. And she shows that women played a lot of different roles in the combat, including the ones that are portrayed in the film, which is really women who are setting bombs in the European quarter, in the milk bar, in the cafeteria, in the offices of Air France. In the film, one of the most powerful scenes of the film is one that shows the women transforming their appearance in front of a mirror. Yes. And the pulsing music of Ennio Morricone is particularly strong in that scene. It's a very dramatic scene. So they change from a, let's call it a traditional Algerian look, clothing into European-style hairdos and clothes in order to go unnoticed, unquestioned as they cross into the European quarter. So it's a very powerful scene, but it's not particularly historically accurate to the extent that many, if not most, of the women who were setting off the bombs were young. They were part of the first generation of Algerians, and particularly Algerian women, to be educated, because there was not a lot of education in the French colonial system for, put scare quotes around the word native here. Mm -hmm. um, but these girls, a lot of them were in their late teens, early 20s. They had been educated. They were used to dressing in that style. So they actually didn't go through that process of transformation. Mm. And the film really shows them as very much subordinate to the male leadership. And in fact, in many cases, the women were much more educated. Ali Lapointe certainly was not educated. Sadi Yassef had had some education. He had been a baker. He was literate, but he he wasn't a highly educated person who had advanced studies or anything like that, unlike some of the the women. So all of that is missing. Mm. It's partly because there's a very influential essay by Franz Fanon. The English translation is Algeria Unveiled, about gender and the revolution that, that imagines women unveiling themselves strategically to carry out revolutionary acts. You know, I'm sure there were many cases in which that was true, but there were also many cases in which that wasn't what happened. Mm -hmm. All of that to say that it's important to always to acknowledge the diversity of gender roles in a society, and all too often when Muslim societies are represented, gender is treated very homogeneously.
Very true. One of the main questions to me is somebody who springs from that background and has grappled with these questions on my life. One main question posed by the film, in my opinion, is the question of violence and justifying the means on both sides, not just on the correct side, which to me is the Algerian side. <laughs> on both sides, what are the deep implications of violence over time? And I think we're still grappling with those questions today as we see all sorts of senseless violence. Of course, in this country, the most famous cases are those that happen in the West, like what happened in Charlie Hebdo, what mm -hmm. happened in Belgium, what happened here in San Bernardino and Orlando, but pretty much throughout the Muslim world as well. Muslims suffering even more than others from this type of uh, extremist violence. What do you imagine might be the influence of this particular movie on younger people who may fantasize themselves the new warriors, the new liberators, as happened during the civil war in Algeria in the 90s. A lot of Algerians, even though the French were no longer there, would just arbitrarily decide those we don't agree with, those who are not quote-unquote Muslim enough, are now the French. <laughs> those who are in the elites, those who are enjoying a Western-like lifestyle are the French. Have you pondered the lessons of this film? Yes, it's such an important and complicated question. The film, I think one must, one would certainly be deluded if one read it as, as anything other than a film that really sides with the Algerian cause. It clearly does, and if you can't see that, then there's a problem to begin with. However, it's certainly a film that while it allows for the need for violence in that context, mm. It engages in lament whenever there are deaths. It treats those deaths with a lot of dignity. It's often noted that the same elegiac music is used yes. when French extremists set off a bomb in the Casbah, in fact, an event that precipitated the shift into terrorism by the FLN. So that the Algerian dead from that bomb is the music that we hear. Is it, everything is slowed down. Like a requiem type of music. Yes, exactly. And then the same music is heard after the you know the revolutionaries set off bombs in the European quarter, and we see the dust settling. And there's nothing graphic. There are no graphic images of of the dead, it just hand or something like that that really suggests the carnage. So in that sense, the film slows down to remind you that whatever the cause, it's important to acknowledge that violence is violence, that it has consequences for people, whatever side they belong to, and that in addition to those who are combatants, there are always those who are civilians, family members, passers-by who, who end up being victims. So the film is very clear about that. It's obviously inspired some people to embrace military action, perhaps in some cases very justified, in other cases very questionable. So people are going to, as, as in the case of any work of art that yes. is in the public domain, the emotional response and the lessons that are drawn are going to be different. Any rich work of art like this, yeah, you, you'll find, uh, as the French say, plenty to eat and plenty to drink from it. <laughs> it's an expression that means you can find anything and it's contrary, depending yeah. on your personal inclination. 
From the Algerian side of things, which we haven't said that much about, I mean, you know, something that comes up a little bit is, I think that the assumption that we could have is the the film depicts the fact that you can win the battle but lose the war. So the French win the Battle of Algiers, clearly, but a couple of years later, there's a kind of a popular insurrection. There's a lot of political discontent linked to the practice of torture in particular, and so the nationalist cause revives and prevails. It's not a very clear account of the way things actually played out, but but the film kind of presents things in that way. But, you know, I suppose there's an additional question, which is, did Algeria... Algeria won, Algeria became an independent nation and necessarily threw off the bonds of colonialism, which were very, very oppressive bonds. But there were also ways in which Algeria lost. The peace was not won in the best way. So people have speculated on if the French campaign had not decimated the leadership and led to the creation of an external Algerian army that later came to power in a coup d'etat, you know, would things have have happened otherwise? Did the French campaign have a, a different kind of, I don't even know that I want to call it a victory, but long-term consequence for the political future of Algeria? Yes, and the question again of violence and the end justifying the means didn't stop in 1962, unfortunately. And this logic of, I've got the weapons, and I'm the boss, I'm the president, never really stopped after that. And I think throughout the Arab world, we're still grappling with it as we speak. You have people like Assad right now, who's an extreme case, of course, who's decided to decimate his own people. That we're still grappling with 50, 60 years later, that violence somehow is the, the organizing principle and not democracy and human rights. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, yeah, the violence of colonialism and the violence that was required to emerge from colonialism has certainly lingered in in these post-colonial states, of course, with many influences from outside, be they from the United States or Europe or the Soviet Union. There are, you know, there are numerous ways in which the those dynamics of violence are not just one sort of taken shape within countries such as Algeria or Syria. You brought up the Algerian, what's sometimes called the Algerian Civil War of the 1990s, yes, yes. sometimes called the Black Decade, in which something like 200,000 Algerians were, were killed in a struggle between the state and a group of Islamist militias over a period of, of a decade. One of the, the arguments that sometimes made about that conflict is that it foreshadows things that are happening now in Egypt and, and and particularly in Syria, where the state will just basically go to any lengths to maintain its hold on power. So Algeria, which certainly was a kind of the emblematic war of decolonization in the late 50s and early 60s, I think if we look closely, we would see that although it's often neglected in American foreign policy circles, and certainly it's neglected in American academia in comparison with the Middle East, that it things happening in Algeria in the late 80s and into the 90s are very much 
very similar to things happening now elsewhere. And also in many ways similar to the war of independence in some perverse ways. The whole question of there are no innocent when you're the enemy was never resolved, and it came back to haunt us a generation later among ourselves. We didn't need the French anymore to have such a war. So these questions of violence being, on the one hand, seemingly indispensable when you have no choice, on the other hand, does it really solve everything? Right. Well, there's a tremendously important philosophical moment in the movie where Ali Lapointe is being schooled, basically, by one of the the historic leaders of the revolution, the only one who's portrayed in the film, Larbi ben Mahidi, who we later see being arrested by the French, and then he's reported to have committed suicide, although it's, of course, given to be understood that he's been killed. But he says to Ali Lapointe, this is the easy part. Yes, that line is an incredible line. And he said it. He's known to have said it. He's one of our great heroes. He said getting rid of the French colonial rule yoke is, is the easy part. The hardest part remains to be accomplished, and that is building something after the French right. are gone. Well, by the time the film The Battle of Algiers was made, it was being filmed just you know at the same time that a, a coup d'etat was happening to overthrow the government of the first president of Algeria, Ahmed Ben Bella. So the coup d'etat of Hwari Boumediene, who was the head of the, the Algerian army, had just occurred when the film was, was being made. So in the back of the, the minds of the filmmakers, even though this is, some, this is one of the other things that really isn't rendered present in the film, is this roiling internecine conflict, struggle for power among the various leaders. And, you know, I think, again, we could extrapolate and say that it's a power struggle that the French helped to create. You know, if they forced the hand of the revolution in a certain way to become what it what it became. But at the same time, yeah, this logic of brute force was never seriously asked in the beginning who Bembilla, the first president, who was placed by Boumedien, who was his minister of defense, he himself had created his own coup d'etat post-independence. He hadn't allowed for any democratic choice uh, by the people. Right. Well, I mean, sadly, in the film, we hear communiques that were issued by the FLN during the the period known as the Battle of Algiers, so this period in 1957 when there's a call for a general strike and the FLN is appealing for recognition to the United Nations. So they're really trying to grab the attention of the population and of the world at the same time. So we hear these communiques being issued that were delivered or written and delivered by one of the, the most important political leaders of the revolution, Aban Hamdan, who Aben is Hamdan, just a yes. few months later killed by other... His rivals within the FLN. Right. Yeah, he was the most brilliant mind in the group, and he was taken out. The Algerians never got to choose him or anybody else. Not Aban Hamdan, not Larbi uh, bin Mahidi, none of them survived the war. Madeleine Dobie is a professor of French and comparative literature 
at Columbia University, you can read her piece on the 50th anniversary of the Battle of Algiers at vomina.org. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. She spoke with Khalil Bendit. You can see the Battle of Algiers at Shattuck Cinemas in Berkeley and Opera Plaza Cinemas in San Francisco. For showtime schedule in the Bay Area, visit momina.org. That's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. To get in touch, you can call us at 510-848-6767, extension 632, email vomekpfa at yahoo.com, connect with us on our Facebook at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, or follow us on Vomina Radio. Please join us next time for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa.